Good morning, Ebenezer. It's so good for us to gather together again today, and yet here I am not gathered with you. As a matter of fact, uh, this morning I'm in Washington, D.C. Uh, as many of you know, I'm a trustee for Guidestone Financial Resources, which is an arm of our Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we handle retirement investments uh, as well as insurance for our pastors and churches, and I'm a trustee on that board of directors. This is one of our two meetings we have each year, and I'm not able to be with you today. Uh, however, uh, you're going to thoroughly enjoy uh, the one who's going to be bringing God's Word to us today. It is my honor and privilege to present to you Dr. J. Robert White. Uh, Dr. White is the immediate past executive director of our Georgia Baptist Mission Board. And he has served our state lovingly and faithfully for well over a quarter of a century in many different capacities. Uh, this morning, he's going to be bringing God's word to you, and you're going to be really, really blessed. Uh, Bob, I want you to know you're among one of the finest congregations anywhere in the state of Georgia. They're going to welcome you and make you feel right at home. So, congregation, we join right, me right now in welcoming to the stage my dear friend, Dr. J. Robert White. Thank you, Fred. He, he looks good there, doesn't he? I think Washington is agreeing with Fred. Uh, what a great work he's doing here. I'm so thankful for his leadership in this interim time, and I want you to know that I'm joining you in praying that God would lead your committee uh, to the right person to come and lead this great church for the years to come. I would be remiss if I didn't take an opportunity to tell you how much I appreciate Ebenezer uh, did through my 26 years as executive director among Georgia Baptists because I know you to be a generous church, a loving church, a church with the world in your heart. And you are committed to missions and not just giving to missions, but going on mission for the cause of Jesus Christ. Thank you for who you are and thank you for the blessing that you are uh, to God's kingdom across the world. It's a joy today to preach to you out of the letter to the Hebrews, and I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, which will serve as our text for the message today, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word from Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. May God bless this reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Father, you know our hearts. You know our various needs as many needs represented by the many people who are here today. And I just pray that you would speak to those needs today through your Holy Spirit. Most especially do we pray for those who have never uh, trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
We pray that this would be the day and the occasion on which they would open up their heart to receive the one who died for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This is an amazing text for an epistle that has an overarching theme that you've already sung about today. That very first chorus, you sang that Jesus is better. The Lord is better. He's better than anything you've ever experienced, better than anybody you have ever known. Jesus is better, and that is the theme of the entire book of Hebrews. We're going to see that represented in the study of the text this morning, but I want you to say that with me. The the theme of Hebrews, Jesus is better. Let's say that together. Jesus is better. I'll say it again with enthusiasm. Jesus is better. Indeed, he is better than anything we've ever experienced, better than any person we have ever known. God, after he spoke, those first words in that first verse, are those words not amazing? That God who spoke everything into order and into creation by the very word of his mouth has spoken to you and to me. After God spoke, God spoke, and my prayer is that you'll hear him speaking to you today. After he spoke long ago, to the fathers in prophets and in many portions and in many ways. You know, uh, one of the arguments we hear from people that uh, challenge Christianity is, well, what do you say about those people who have never heard the gospel? How could God condemn them to everlasting punishment in hell just because they didn't have the opportunity to hear The wonderful truth is God reveals himself to us in many, many ways. In the 1950s, when my dad was pastor at Main Street Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, he received an invitation from Lonnie Iglesias, a Kuna Indian, living and ministering on the island of Alagandi in the San Blas Islands, a chain of about a hundred or so coral reef islands off the coast of Panama. Lonnie invited my dad to come down and to preach among the Kuna Indians, and he did so. He went down there for about two weeks, preached in a meeting house. It was kind of like a pole barn with a straw roof on it. It was quite an experience when he arrived on the island. He was the first white man ever to be on that island. And the chieftains had to get together to discuss whether they were going to allow this white man to spend the night on their island. After their council, they decided that they would invite him to stay because they wanted to hear what he had to say. And for two weeks, he preached the simple yet powerful gospel of Jesus Christ among the Kuna Indians, a very primitive group of people. One night, as the invitation was given... Chief Nigapipi, who was the primary chieftain of that island, came forward at the invitation time, extended his hand to my father, and this is what he said. He said, all of my life I have known that there was a God, an intelligent being who made all of this. 
because I've observed the sun coming up on this side of the ocean and, and going across and going down in this side of the ocean every day. Every day. And every day I have watched the tides come in and go out with great systematic regularity. I've known that these things could not happen by accident. I knew there had to be a supreme God who made all of this happen. I didn't know until tonight what his name is. And then he grinned as he said, his name is Jesus. And I want to give my heart and my life to Jesus. And he trusted Christ that night and they had a baptism in the ocean and the chief was baptized. Many came to Christ during that two-week crusade on a very primitive island, Alagondi. With no greater revelation than observing the sun coming up out of the east, crossing the sky and setting in the west. With no greater revelation than watching the tides come in and go out with regularity, this observant chieftain knew that there was a creator God. What about the people who have never heard trust God to reveal himself in many various ways to us through prophets, through the scripture, and through the Holy Spirit. But to those who have never heard, he reveals himself in a myriad of ways. In verse 2, it begins that verse by saying, in these last days. Those words would have caused the Hebrews present to sit up on the edge of their seat because they understood that in these last days was a key phrase that was in reference to the reality that God would do something that he had never done before and would never do after in revealing himself to his people across the world. And indeed he did in giving his own son to be our savior. In these last days, God gave us his son. By the way, this was God's most eloquent speech. The giving of Jesus Christ, his son, to be our Savior. Through Jesus, God spoke in a way that he had never before spoken and would never speak thereafter. Jesus is the one and only the most eloquent message of God. He is absolutely God's final word. There's no need for you to look for another Messiah. There is no one else coming. The world needs to understand that. I paid a visit to a lady on the church field where I was serving in southeast Indiana when I was in seminary. I knew she had never trusted Christ. I sat down with her in her living room and opened up the scriptures and shared God's plan of salvation. I said, now we have been through the presentation of the gospel. Do you understand what I have shared with you today? And she said, yes, I believe I do. I said, would you like to invite Christ to come into your heart then? Knowing that God loves you and Jesus died for your sins, would you open up your heart now and invite Christ to come in? She said, I don't think so. 
I said, why not? She said, I'm waiting for a sign. You ever heard that? I hope you haven't said that. I said, well, what kind of sign are you waiting for? Oh, she said, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a streak of lightning, maybe a burning bush. Maybe God would speak to me out of a cloud. All of those things God has already done. And he gave us his final word, Jesus. If you're waiting for some other sign before you give your heart to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll wait forever because God has already spoken to you. He's already made clear to you. His plan of salvation is his one and only son, Jesus, and there is no other Messiah coming, and there is no other plan. There is no plan B or alternate plan of God. The plan is that all of us who are sinners, every last single one of us are, would acknowledge our sin, seek God's forgiveness, and invite the forgiving grace of God through Jesus Christ to come into our hearts. And I would ask you this morning, have you done that? It's hazardous for you, if you've not done that, to walk out of this sanctuary today without giving your heart to Christ. None of us is promised the next moment. Who is Jesus? Verses 2 and 3 spell it out very plainly for us, and I want us to look at it. It is the heart of the gospel. It is the simplicity of theology. In verses 2 and 3. In these last days has spoken to us, here it comes, in his son. Jesus is God's only begotten son. There's no one else like him. No one. No one to compare him to. He is beyond compare. There's going to be no other person to be called the Son of God. As a matter of fact, when we think about the theme that Jesus is better, we look down at verses 4 and 5. You know, the Hebrews revered angels. Right from the beginning, the writer of Hebrews made it very clear that Jesus is better than the angels. This would have been a shock to some of the people reading this letter. But verse 4, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you, and again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Well, the answer is obvious. To none of the angels did God ever say, you will be a son to me. Jesus is the one and only begotten son. And he is the only way to eternal life. Now, there are people in our culture and all across the world, people who will say to you from the perspective of different religions, there are many ways to God. We're all going to wind up at the same place. not so. False. Jesus made it clear. I am the way, he said, the truth and the life. 
no one, no one comes to the Father but by me. So regardless of what you hear in the various religions of the world and the various cultures of our world, Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God and the one and only way to eternal life. Jesus is Son. But you look further in that verse 2 and it says, whom he appointed heir of all things. God appointed Jesus heir. Now that makes perfect sense to us when we understand the Hebrew culture. The firstborn was the natural heir. And if a father had only one child, that child became the heir. Jesus was naturally God's heir because he's the only child God ever had. But not only that, he was heir by right, but he was also heir because he was declared heir by the sovereignty of God. A number of years ago, I attended the evangelism conference in Alabama at Alabama Baptist Convention meeting. Manuel Scott was preaching. Manuel Scott stood about that tall. He's an African-American preacher, very vibrant, powerful preacher. But he would stand on a Coca-Cola crate. Some of y'all know what a Coca-Cola crate is. But he would stand on a Coca-Cola crate behind the podium. And he was a very vibrant preacher, preacher, and he was characterized by the galluses, the suspenders that he wore, and they were always bright red. And they were a very important part of his message. <laughs> when he would start to make a point, he would pull those suspenders out, and when he made his point, he'd let them pop back. And I remember watching him present the message, and he said, you know what it means when the Bible says God is sovereign? Pop. It means that God can do anything he wants to do. That's exactly what it means. And when God could do anything he wanted to do, he declared Jesus is his heir. If you will, flip back in your Bible to Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. It makes this point very clear. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord... He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Jesus was God's heir by right of being God's only child. He was God's heir because God declared him to be his heir. I want you to think about this this morning because uh, you all have come from many different places today, from many different experiences into this house of worship. Some of you are coming here with things on your heart that are heavy, maybe from family, maybe from work, maybe interpersonal relationships, but something is bothering you deeply. Maybe it's a challenge, a financial challenge, or some other challenge you're facing. Do you think that God in Christ 
has the power and the authority to do anything to help you. Jesus is God's son. All that is God's, which is everything, God has given to his son as his rightful heir and his declared heir. Trust me, there's nothing in your life that Jesus cannot take care of. Will you trust him? Just trust him. In the deepest, darkest times of your life, trust him and walk with him. No wonder when he gave us the Great Commission, he began by saying, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. He has the power. Thirdly, not only is Jesus son, not only is he heir, but he is creator of the world. But you say, wait a minute, I I thought in the beginning in Genesis it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, and Jesus, according to Scripture, is God. You know about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All parts of the Trinity participated in the creation. We read in Genesis that the Spirit of God was on the face of the waters. You remember that? And over in Colossians, it tells us that Jesus was creator. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus the Christ is the creator of the world, and in him everything consists. All things hold together. I've had people in my church office when I was serving as pastor in a local church say, you know, my life is coming apart at the seams. Everything seems to be happening to me right now. Focus your gaze on Christ. Put your life in his hands. Understand that what the scripture says is so true. In him, all things hold together. In him, all things consist. Jesus is the glue that keeps us together in him. Jesus is God's son. He is God's heir. He is creator. I'm amused at scientists and their refusal to say the words, in the beginning, God. It was the 4th of July, I had had hamburger cookout with my daughters and their families, our grandkids. We got nine grandchildren, by the way, I'd be glad to share pictures sometime. And uh, after we had fun together and everybody went home, I went upstairs to my office, I turned on my computer, And you know how the news of the day will pop up on the screen? Well, there was a story there that a group of scientists in Geneva, Switzerland had discovered the God particle. I thought that was interesting, so I read through the article. Had these scientists come to a faith experience in God? Well, not quite. 
They had been searching through the hedron semi-collider in Geneva, Switzerland for the finite particle called the Higgs boson particle because it is their belief that in the beginning of time there was this infinitesimal particle called the Higgs boson that began to divide and multiply and out of it sprang all mass and boom it once eventually you've got a world and a universe. Well, I, I read through the article several times. I was looking for something. What I was looking for, I did not find. I wanted the scientists to say where they thought the Higgs boson particle came from. You know, if you're going to be an honest scientist, an honest seeker, don't you have to go back to when there's nothing? You can't start with something. When you're speaking in terms of the creation of all things, you've got to go back to nothing, right? That's why the old theologians in Latin would refer to the creation ex nihilo. Those words mean out of nothing, God created everything. Sir John Eccles, a brilliant person, Nobel laureate in neurophysiology, I can hardly even say the word, made an interesting statement about this world and universe in which we live. He said, it's not likely that the circumstances would come together to create the intricate universe in which we live. But it's clear that it Sometimes those circumstances just happened and we got the universe that we know. It's interesting to me how brilliant people will do backbends to try to stay away from saying the words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not an accident. It is the reality of an intelligent creator who spoke the words and out of nothing created everything. And he created you and has a plan for your life. And the most amazing thing is that he loves you. In spite of your sin. And sent his only son to be our savior. Then in verse 3, it further identifies Jesus as the radiance of God's glory. And he is the radiance of God's glory. When we walk out of here, if the clouds have cleared, it looks to me like it's still pretty cloudy out there and thunderstorms are coming this afternoon, they say. But normally on a July day when you walk out in the sun, you feel the heat, don't you? That heat tells you about the sun. It tells you about the nature of the sun. Our star is a ball of fire. It's hot. The radiance of the sun tells us about the nature of our star. Jesus, the Bible says, is the radiance of God's glory. 
The only thing we can know about God is what God reveals to us. We can't know it apart from his revelation. He revealed himself through his son Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory. So we can know about the nature of God by knowing Jesus personally and sensing the light of the world from our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an old hymn that speaks of this. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. Like sunshine at noonday, his glory shone in. The light of the world is Jesus. Come to the light, tis shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. The truth is, in the midst of our darkness of sin in our own hearts, if we will just open up our hearts and invite the light of the world to come in, Jesus comes in with all the radiance of God's glory to bless our lives. And the mystery is, why do we shut him out when he has so much expressed his desire to come in? God desires to give you the greatest gift you've ever received in forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of eternal life. Why would anybody ever reject that gift? Not only is he the radiance of the glory of God, he is the exact representation of his nature. That's an interesting word there where it says he is the exact representation of God's nature. You remember the, the Roman emperors had a signet ring. It had sort of the reverse seal of the Roman Empire in that ring. And when the emperor would go to seal important documents of law, he would put hot wax on the document and he would press the ring down into the hot wax and then pull it back and there would be an exact representation of that Roman seal in that hot wax and it became the seal of law and authority of the empire. Now the word here used for the exact representation of God is the word icon in Greek. It's the word from which we get our word icon. Now, if you know anything about computers, and nowadays I think most everybody does, you know you can put software on your computer and you can create a shortcut to that software by putting an icon on your home page. So if you want to know what, how to get to the software, you click on that icon and it takes you directly to the source. Jesus, the Bible literally says, Jesus is the icon of God. So if you want to know what God is like, click on Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the exact representation of God. And he is our redeemer. What a wonderful truth. The latter part of verse 3 says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
We know that to be the crucifixion of Christ on the cross of Calvary. But we know he didn't stay dead. When he was put in the tomb, he came out alive, victorious over sin and death. And he said, as you believe in me, you will have a resurrection body like me. That's glorious truth. Glorious truth. I like the way the writer of Hebrews says it a little bit later on. If you don't have this marked down in your Bible, I would encourage you to do this in chapter 10, verses 10, 11, and 12. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And here's this phrase, once for all. Don't miss that. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The priest, the Levitical priest, would sacrifice lambs and bulls and goats to bring forgiveness to the people, but it wasn't a permanent forgiveness. They had to do it day after wearisome, day after week, after month, after year. Their sacrificing of these animals was never complete. And then God sent his son, the perfect Lord Jesus Christ, to give his life for us in a once-for-all sacrifice that would never, ever need to be done again. But he offering one sacrifice for sins for all time, verse 12, sat down at the right hand of God. Why did, why did Jesus sit down at the right hand of God? Why did he sit down? There's no evidence that the Levitical priest had any place to sit down. They stood in sacrifice constantly. But Jesus sacrificed and sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work was finished once and for all. He loves you so much. We miss God's best by simply not trusting him for what he wants to give to us. This story has been reported as true. I can't verify the validity of the story, but it's been reported in newspapers all over the country as valid as the 1980s. Arnold Palmer, professional golfer, was in his prime. He got a call one day from the prince of Saudi Arabia. Arnold, he said, I would love to play golf with you. If you will come over to Saudi Arabia, I will send my personal airplane to pick you up. I'll put you up in our finest hotel. I'll take care of you. And we'll play for a week together. Would you please come? Palmer said, I, I couldn't pass up an opportunity like that. So he, he went over there, and for five days they played golf together, and Palmer gave some instruction and guidance as the prince wished that he would. And at the end of the week, the prince said to Arnold, he said, Arnold, I, I just can't believe that you would leave everything you were doing and come over here and play golf with me for these five days. I want to give you something for, for your kindness. Palmer was very timid about accepting anything else from the prince. So he said, I could never have hoped to have had an experience like this in my life. You've 
taking care of my every need. Thank you for having me over. You, you don't need to give me anything. The prince insisted, and Palmer didn't want to offend him. So he said, well, he said, I've got a uh, collection of golf clubs that I admire a lot. If you want to give me a golf club, he said, that'll be much appreciated, and I'll treasure it as long as I live. The prince said, say no more, it is done. Palmer was flown back home, and it was about six weeks later, he got an envelope from Saudi Arabia. He saw the the postmark on it. He opened it up, and when he turned it upside down, a set of keys fell out, and a plat of land came out. He had just received a gift of a 500-acre golf club in western Pennsylvania. You know, sometimes we ask God for a golf club, and what God really wants to give to you is a golf club. More than you have ever imagined, more than you could ever dream. If you'll just open up your heart and invite him to come in, there is no limit to how he can bless you spiritually in your life. Will you trust him? He's God's son. He's heir of all things. He's the creator of our world and of the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God himself. And he is our redeemer. He deserves our trust. He deserves our yes to his invitation to trust him. Would you give him your life 100%? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the great truth we find in these three verses in the letter to the Hebrews. Lord, I pray that you would point out in our hearts today the relevance of this wonderful passage for our life today. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done in sending your son to be our savior. We're so thankful for Jesus and for his personal love for us in spite of our sin. We thank you that when Jesus died on the cross to redeem us, that it was a once for all, a forever sacrifice for sins. And I pray for those here today who have never trusted Jesus, that they would come forward at this invitation and give their heart to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, those of us who have trusted you, I pray that we would trust you more and more every day, that we would deepen our walk with you our obedience to you as we realize once again who you are and what you did for us once and for all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come to our invitation time and as the music is being played today and you're standing, we're going to ask you to come forward. If you'd like to give your heart to Jesus Christ as your Savior, This is the moment you have. You're not promised tomorrow or later today. This is the moment. If you've never trusted Christ and been saved, this is the time. This is the appointed moment. Would you come?
Maybe you're here today and you're already a Christian, but you know, you're living life kind of lackadaisically, uh, spiritually. You're not acknowledging the greatness of who Jesus is and what he's done every day. And you would desire to recommit your walk to him. Perhaps you would want to make that public. Others perhaps would come on the transfer of membership from another church. However, God may be speaking to your heart today. We invite you to come forward. Two of our staff will be here at the front to receive you as you come. Would you stand together right now as we enter our time of invitation?